Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. Hopefully you'll find it entertaining, informative. I don't know how much I can make you laugh today. I've got, as usual, a group of interesting topics to cover. Well, it's getting towards the end of summer, and I know the schools are back going going, uh, going strong. Everyone's kind of back to the normal routine. When school starts, it's kind of like the end of summer, even though technically summer isn't over yet. I thought I would just, for a moment, look back on this past year as far as the income tax law has to do with things, because I've gotten into a few more discussions lately with some people. I just want to point out that overall, the new tax law saved almost everyone some taxes, and there are certain situations where it seems like it may not have for everyone, but in my experience with a quite a diverse group of clients that I help every year, I would venture to say 90% of all of the clients I helped actually lowered their taxes versus the law before the new tax law, which would have been the 2017 year. The 2018 year was the first year of the new tax rates and the new tax rules. It's very complicated the way the parts of the tax deductions and things work together. They sort of work Sometimes they work independently, but then sometimes they're interrelated. One thing can give you a deduction on one way, but then it'll hurt you somewhere else. It's very complicated to really know how much you would have saved unless you have somebody who's familiar with all this actually analyze it like I've done with my clients. I just want to mention that most people should have had less tax, and in my opinion, that's usually a good thing. And so... That's just That was just something I wanted to bring up because I keep hearing from people who act like they don't think it's a good idea, but when I ask them why they think that, they really don't have much of an answer or much of a basis, a factual basis of what they're really saying. So I just wanted to share that. The first article I wanted to discuss today, it actually came out uh, a few weeks ago and I found it in my favorite news place called ZeroHedge.com. The title of this article, and you can find it by just searching the title, is called Congress Courageously Sticks U.S. Taxpayers with a $6 trillion liability. If you've been listening to Business Buzz for a while, you know how big a trillion is because I've described how gigantic the number trillion actually is. So whenever you hear trillion, just remember it's gigantic. And this is from a man named Simon Black, and his website is called SovereignMan.com. I'm just going to read some of this. There seems to be an unwritten rule with lawmakers that every time they create a terrible piece of legislation, they give it the most noble-sounding name. The USA Patriot Act from 2001 was a great example. It sounds great. Who wouldn't love a law named for patriots? And yet that was easily among the most freedom-killing laws ever passed in U.S. history, giving the federal government nearly unlimited authority to wage war and spy on its own people. There are so many other examples. The USA Freedom Act from 2015, which renewed many of the worst provisions of the Patriot Act or the Hire Act from 2010, which created some of the most heinous tax rules of the last 50 years. The names of these laws all sounded wonderful, but their effects were absolutely terrible. The new SECURE Act will likely be no different. If you haven't heard of SECURE, it's a new piece of legislation aimed at fixing the U.S. retirement system. SECURE stands for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement which is pretty clever when you think about it. People want to associate their retirement with a word like secure. So even without knowing anything about the law, most people will probably have good feelings about it based solely on the name. But if you actually read the legislation, secure contains a number of predictably terrible consequences. For starters, 
Secure is basically a gigantic tax increase, and it's a tax increase that will particularly affect your children when you pass away. Under current law, you could leave your IRA to your children in a fairly tax-efficient way. That's actually one of the nice things about an IRA. If your kids inherit your IRA, they're required to pay out a small portion of the funds each year, and those distributions would be taxable income. Now, I'm just going to stop there and interject. Yeah, it's if if a small if a younger person inherits an IRA, the amount they have to withdraw each year under the current law before this secure one was very small, so they could stretch this out over 30 or 40 years and never put themselves in a high tax bracket unless they had a lot of other income. And this goes on to say, but the current rules only require tiny distributions. Your kids are allowed to stretch out the annual payments over the course of their lives, resulting in very minor taxation. The new rules completely eliminate this benefit. Under the SECURE Act, your kids would have 10 years to pay out and be taxed the entire value of your retirement account. This means that the annual payouts would be much higher, thus bumping your children up to a higher tax bracket, meaning that they'll end up paying much higher taxes on your retirement savings. This is tantamount to a huge estate tax increase, and it's one that primarily affects the middle class. For wealthy people, retirement accounts typically only comprise a small percentage of their assets, so this rule change won't have much of an impact. But for the middle class, retirement accounts are often one of the largest sources of their estates, and this legislation will be a significant hit for them. The U.S. House already passed the SECURE Act, and just in case you're about to start hating on your least favorite political party, you should know that it was passed with almost unanimous support from both parties. Though I have my doubts whether most members of Congress even read the legislation. It's currently in the Senate. You know, I'm going to have to look that up because this is not a brand new article. So I'll have to look that up for you in a, in a future show. So that was one of the things. Uh, the other part of this is pension plans in the United States are currently guaranteed by a quasi-government agency called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. The PBGC is sort of like the FDIC for pension funds. Now, if you remember uh, on Business Buzz, I've talked to you about the FDIC being a backstop for banks that go broke. But if there was any large bank uh, failures, the FDIC couldn't cover much. So I'm going to continue reading. So that if a pension plan goes bust, the PBGC will step in with a bailout. Problem is the PBGC itself is nearly insolvent and will run out of money in 2025, and its balance sheet is trivial compared to the multi-trillion dollar pension problem. So Congress came up with a solution, go into debt. According to the new legislation, whenever a pension plan runs out of funds, Congress wants them to borrow money in order to keep making payments to beneficiaries. This raises an obvious question, who would be insane enough to loan money to an insolvent pension fund? Well, you'll be pleased to know that your esteemed members of Congress have courageously signed you up for the task, putting the American taxpayer on the hook for this potential $6 trillion liability. Clearly, this plan is the work of genius. If nothing else, these two laws point to an obvious conclusion. It's more important than ever to get your house in order when it comes to retirement planning. Pension funds aren't going to be able to keep their promises. Even Social Security, according to its own annual report, will run out of money in 15 years. And even when you responsibly set aside your own money for retirement, lawmakers will suddenly change the rules and impose a major tax increase on the middle class. So that's pretty much that article, but I thought I'd want to share that because things happen that uh, I know for a fact that this SECURE Act, in my opinion, has not been on the mainstream News, I haven't heard about it. I don't think if I, unless I read Zero Hedge, I would even have known about this. And it's just another example of the future, the future where pensions are insolvent, money will be borrowed, printed and borrowed in extraordinary amounts. We already have extraordinary amounts. I was talking to someone, I had a bit of a vacation a week or so ago. 
As I was talking to someone about the deficit problem that I've mentioned on Business Buzz, the statistic that gets me the most is for you to imagine the size of what $22 trillion is, the national debt. I had looked up a couple months ago the total fair market value of all real estate in the United States is something like $38 trillion. Could you imagine driving through every neighborhood in the country, every city in the country, first of all, every section of the country, every state, every neighbor, every city, every neighborhood within that city, driving around and looking at every house and every property that you can see. It would take you years to even get through one state. That entire value is barely, it's not even twice that $22 trillion debt. Now, the $22 trillion debt is just what the straight national debt is listed as. The real debt, which is called the unfunded liabilities like Medicare, Social Security, and these government pensions for the next 50 years, that figure is more like $250 trillion. I point out the value of the real estate thing in $38 trillion as a way for you to try to wrap your head around how big $22 trillion is. It's amazingly big, and it's an amazingly big problem. Now, most of these discussions about debts and deficits, it's all related to, it's accumulated over the last uh, 40 or 50 years of deficits, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the best case scenario, right now I believe the annual debt is scheduled to increase by like $1.2 trillion what they call the budget deficit. So you think to yourself, if the economy was good and if we could get rid of the, if we could get rid of all the imports we have to buy and not have such a trade deficit that eventually we could turn it around. Well, the problem is even with interest rates low, There's so much interest to be paid each year. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. You'll never balance even one year of of the books. It'll never happen, let alone to have some kind of surplus that could somehow pay off $22 It'll never happen. Then you might say, well, the economy's doing great, right? I've got another article that I found on Zero Hedge, and it was from just a few days ago. And it's titled Trucking Recession, Heavy-Duty Truck Orders Collapse, Production Slashed, Cancellation Orders Soar. It says, new reports from the trucking industry show the transportation recession continues to gain momentum through the end of summer, likely to continue through 2019 into the first half of 2020. The U.S. trucking industry had a blockbuster year in 2018 as high demand for freight allowed transportation companies to expand fleets. But since freight demand was artificial, sparked by importers pulling forward to get ahead of tariffs, the good times were destined to end and end rather sharply. The Institute for Supply Management's Purchasing Managers Index plunged to 49.1 in August, the first time a contraction has been seen since 2016. Prints below 50 suggest the manufacturing economy is shrinking. Data also showed new orders dropped to a seven-year low while the production index hit 2015 lows. I'm going to just read a little more. We're going to be coming up on break number one. But I wanted to continue on talking about the transportation. This is like what they call an indicator of the economy. A transportation manufacturing recession is developing, but it didn't start overnight. The first sign of a slowdown began last summer when freight rates peaked last June and have since collapsed 20% through this year, reported by the Wall Street Journal. There are more trucks than there are loads now, said Kyle Kotke, general manager for Kotke Trucking Incorporated in Buffalo Lake, Minnesota. 
Production for new trucks is still elevated as manufacturers fulfill orders placed last year, but new purchases and production volumes are starting to weaken. According to ACT Research, heavy-duty truck orders from the four largest truck makers in North America. Well, there's that promise break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back in a minute. Hi, my name is Ryan Bourne. And I'm Danica Bourne. And, and we're, we're the, the owners, owners of South Coast, Coast Tax. We started our company 10 years ago in an effort to help our fellow Christians experiencing tax issues resolve their matters by taking a simple three-step approach. South Coast Tax are Christian-based tax accountants and attorneys that specialize in releasing bank levies, wage garnishments, and filing complex tax returns. We are the leaders in acceptance of offers and compromise with awesome results. We're also a small firm who will treat you like family, not just a number. Call us today at 1-800-TAX-1176 for a free consultation. And we'll take the time to explain all of the programs that you qualify for in order to allow you a fresh start. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Call us today at 1-800-TAX-1176, and together we can help achieve this goal by putting the IRS debt behind you for good. Again, that number is 1-800-TAX-1176. Attention KKXX listeners, be sure to tune in weekdays at 8 a.m. for Hope for Today. We are excited to have the opportunity to air the Hope for Today program with David Hawking. Please make sure to support the ministry work of David Hawking and all the other wonderful ministries that allow us to spread the good news of Christ here on the North Valley's home for Christian talk. KKXX 930. back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I hope you're having a nice Chico afternoon. I'm glad you have a little time to spend with me. You may be, you may be driving around. I know school is in full swing, so there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of activity out there. I'm happy to be here just trying to do a little education and hopefully some entertainment coming up toward the end of the show. So I'm going to just pick up here. It's not much more of this article about the the trucking business in the industry. According to ACT Research, heavy-duty truck orders from the four largest truck makers in North America collapsed 80% in July year over year. That means this July versus the previous July is 80% lower. That's almost everything. 100% lower would be zero. Orders in June plunged 69% from a year earlier. So we've had a, an increase in the rate of lower orders. As heavy-duty truck orders collapse, suppliers such as ones who produce transmissions and trailers have predicted that the outlook for sales this year will be horrible. XL Specialized Trailers, a manufacturer of specialized trailers for hauling heavy things, has warned that in the last three months, orders have plummeted. We are planning for 2020 that is not going to be as good, said Stuart Slepper, president of XL Specialized Trailers. ACT Research stressed that last year's surge in trucking demand has led to overcapacity for the industry, could depress freight rates for the next several years. About 6% more capacity was brought online last year, or about 90,000 heavy-duty trucks. Production of heavy-duty trucks could reach 350,000 vehicles this year, the second highest level since 2006. ACT Research expects heavy-duty trucks to decline to about 238,000 vehicles next year, a production level that is more in line with normal years. It would not take much of a weaker gross domestic product to send the truck industry down more, said Don Ake, Vice President of Commercial Vehicles at Transportation Equipment Research Group, FTR. He said that manufacturers have already notified suppliers about future production cuts beginning this quarter. He expects other truck manufacturers to start slashing production 
by 20% by the end of the fourth quarter from current levels. Order cancellations have already started to surge as freight companies are beginning to realize the overcapacity crisis. Dave DePointe, president of East Manufacturing, said the company's trailer cancellation rate jumped to 8% in late summer compared with an average of around 1%. He expects production of trailers to drop 20% later this year. They don't need any more trailers right now. He said the flatbed industry is a real indicator of economic health. What's new in this report is that production cuts of heavy-duty trucks and trailers are starting as cancellation requests soar. Couple this with a transportation manufacturing recession and the increasing possibilities of a full-blown recession could be as early as next year. So that was, that was an article I wanted to share. It's, there's certain indicators that give you a good idea of the overall health of the economy. Another one, I don't have any statistics with me today, but the uh, another one is called the, uh, I can't remember the, the word, but it's a freight index of uh, what the rate of freight charges are on the big ocean liners. And that index has been dropping a lot. And I know over the last few years it hit some rock bottom amounts. That's an indicator that there just isn't a lot of business going around. And I've talked before about a thing called the velocity of money. It's the dollar amount of transactions going on over a period of time divided by the money supply. So you can see if you have a fraction where the bottom number gets bigger, you're going to reduce the overall value of that fraction. In other words, one-fourth is smaller than one-half. So when the four on the bottom is twice as big as the two on the bottom, in other words, when one-fourth is twice as big as one-half on the bottom half, that means the fraction itself is lower because one-fourth is less than one-half. This thing with velocity of money, if you look at a chart of the velocity of money, even though there's a lot of dollar transactions going on with inflation and everything's more expensive, The money supply, which is the bottom number of the fraction, is so huge now with all these trillions of dollars that have been added over the last 10 years of crazy fiscal zero interest management of the Federal Reserve. Even though there's a lot of transaction dollars flying around, the velocity of money is lower now than it was in the Great Depression. In other words, when that lower number of a fraction goes way up, like the the volume of money, the money supply, you have to have a lot of transactions going on for the top half of that fraction to not let that fraction go tiny, if that makes sense. It's amazing to think that the velocity of money right now is lower than it was in the Great Depression, but that is true because of the gigantic money supply. Now, what can go wrong when there's a gigantic money supply? Most people, like average people, middle-class type people, people like me and probably you, we haven't seen our money supply go up by 30 times in the last 10 years. But in general, money has gone up in a huge way. Problem is it's gone to the wrong places, and it hasn't gone to help the basic American family. And that's where the money supply gets big. And my next topic is going to have something to do with that also, because if there's that much money around, it has to go somewhere. Now, recently it's gone into the bond market. We had a situation a couple weeks ago, the 30-year United States Treasury bond yielded less than 2% for the first time in history. It's now back up over two, but not a whole lot over two. I can't remember the actual number right now. This extra money has gone into the bond market bubble, driving down yields on bonds, which also means that if you're a retired person on a fixed income, part of your income in the old days would have come from interest earned on a savings account. If you were smart enough to put some money away while you were working, or maybe you sold a house and were able to keep $100,000 in the bank. 
20 or 30 years ago, you could have had a savings account paying you even at 6% on that 100000 That would give you $500 a month toward groceries and gas for your car, and you wouldn't have had to touch the principal to buy groceries or gas for your car. Now, your savings account might pay 1%. That's $80 a month. And it's amazing because $80 a month now doesn't buy you anything near what $80 used to buy 20 or 30 years ago. I remember shopping for groceries when I was a student here at CSU Chico. And I remember thinking, oh, that bag, because I went to the store to grab a small load of groceries, and I remember one bag cost me $20 worth of things. And I remember thinking, whoa, one bag of groceries costs $20? Now, if you go to the grocery store, you can easily spend, even watching the prices, I go and just look for everything on sale when I can, you can easily spend, just say, $250, and that a lot of times will easily fit into four or five bags. So now we're looking at 40 to $50 a bag for groceries, which is not, that's not out of the question. What we have is the problem of, it's going to be there. You're going to hear a lot of this in the future. It's called stagflation. Wages, income, everything's stagnant, but prices continue to go up with inflation. That's called stagflation. And that hurts. It hurts a lot. When prices keep creeping up, but your income stays the same, you could see how that works. That's a recipe for disaster. And if people on fixed incomes for the last 10 years have earned virtually zero on their savings for interest, that means that when prices go up higher than wages or income goes up, they're going to have to be pulling money out of their savings just to make ends meet. Social Security goes up 1% or 2% a year based on the fake CPI number. If your grocery bill goes up 10% and your Social Security only goes up 2%, you just lost 8% and you'll probably never catch that up. I'm heading into another break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. KKXX is excited to present Seeds of Truth with Joe Holcraft. Each weekday evening, Joe has hosted the Catholic Hour every weekend for the last eight years. And Seeds of Truth promises the same Catholic understanding of sacred scripture, contemporary faith-based topics, and the latest news from around the world. If you have questions about faith, join Joe and the Seeds of Truth right here on KKXX each evening, Monday through Friday. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Dacus. The National Education Association has recently spelled out a new proposal which has been adopted by the organization. The proposal supports a fundamental right to abortion under Roe v. Wade. It was suspected, folks, for three decades that the NEA was pro-abortion. There is now no longer any doubt. It is a sad irony that a union of three million public teachers would adopt an extreme anti-child and anti-family position. Well, Pacific Justice Institute encourages pro-life teachers and parents to express their opposition to the NEA leadership. The Pacific Justice Institute provides legal representation to individuals without charge. Learn more at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. He really likes to be around people. I get out my mat and I'm doing a downward dog and he's underneath. He's quite the pug about town. He gets invited to a lot of parties. He knows he's a pretty big deal. Look at this little face. I mean, you know, I love him. Hamilton the pug, Instagram star and shelter pet. Amazing adoption stories start in shelters. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Glad you have a chance to spend part of your busy day with me. I've got a little bit of a guessing game we're going to play here for a couple of minutes. If you've been listening to Business Buzz at all, you won't have trouble guessing this word that we're going to we're going to make the goal of the game here. So, I have an article written by my one of my favorite authors named Egon von Greyers. It was just written a few days ago, and I need you to guess what the blank word is in this title, and then I'm going to read one paragraph, and I'm going to see if you know, and uh, this is a good test to see if you've been listening to Business Buzz, because if you have, I know you're going to guess this word. So the title of this article is blank, golden opportunity. Okay, now wait till I read this paragraph. There is one spectacular investment opportunity today that virtually no one talks about. It represents less than 0.1% of global financial assets. This investment has a potential upside of 35 times, or 3,500%. The downside is extremely limited since supply is finite and demand strong. It is selling at around production cost and has a real intrinsic value. It has also been money for thousands of years. I'm going to stop right now and continue with the quiz. So on the count of three, tell me what word fits in the title that I said blank. One, two, three. Okay, did you guess it? I'm going to, I'm going to read on here. Yes, I am of course talking about silver. It is probably one of the most undervalued investments that you can buy today. Since the top in 2011 at $50, silver went as low as $14 in 2015. But we must remember that silver was $4 in 2002. Many investors have been burnt by silver buying high and selling low. I heard of investors who bought at $50 as they expected a breakout above the 1980 high at 50. A fall of up to 70% since then obviously hurts. But fortunately, all silver investors will be amply rewarded in coming years whatever their buying price was. If you hold silver today, or if you intend to buy, you are now looking at one of those times in history when an investment is likely to make spectacular gains for an extended period of several years. At some point, probably this year, silver will move up several dollars in a day or two, and later tens of dollars. Over the next five years, silver could exceed $500 per ounce. Silver is not for widows and orphans. But let me warn you already now, silver is not for widows and orphans. The move up will also see periods of vicious corrections that will keep you awake at night if you are a nervous investor. Thus, there will be a massive volatility, so the gains will also involve regular pains. I'm going to step in here and just let you guys know, if you haven't been watching, silver in the last couple months has moved from around 14-something to almost 20 a few days ago. So that was about a 40-something percent increase in a couple of months. We had a day last week, I believe it was Friday, where silver got hammered again and it went down almost a dollar in one day. It's still over 18 right now, but it was close to 20 just uh, three or four days ago. So I'm going to keep reading. So definitively... So definitively better to buy now before the real move starts. We have already seen a $4 move from the lows at the end of June. That's what I was talking about. But that is nothing compared to what is coming. It is normally not worthwhile to wait for pullbacks because they might not come or they will come from much higher levels. So although we will see massive volatility in silver, most of the surprises will be on the upside. There will be periods when all technical indicators are screaming overbought but the price continues to run. But don't forget that there also will be vicious corrections like the one we have just seen, which is a great opportunity to buy silver. That's the one he was talking about. It was like almost a dollar in one day. It was amazing. And I've talked about this on Business Buzz in prior episodes, so I'm going to read this again. This is that same article. Gold-silver ratio is the key. Now, gold-silver ratio just means for the price of gold, how many ounces of silver could you buy? 
So why I am so certain that silver will move up now? I have often stated that the real upturn in the precious metals will always be led by silver. Once gold broke the six-year Maginot resistance line at 1350 in late June, this was the signal for the metals getting out of the starting blocks. So that break was the signal, and the gold-silver ratio peaked a few days later at 94. And I'll just say that means that if you had around $1,400 at that point, you could have either bought one ounce of gold or 94 ounces of silver. So that break was the signal, and the gold-silver ratio peaked a few days later at 94. As silver is now going up faster than gold, the ratio is coming down fast and has so far lost 13%, but that is just the beginning. I expect that ratio to first come down to the 2011 low at 30. This means silver will go up three times faster than gold when the ratio goes from 94 to 30. Now, like he said, the ratio has already gone from 94 to 82 in just the last uh, couple of weeks. When gold reaches 2000 silver could be $66. If we take an example that gold will reach an intermediate top at, say, $2,000, and the gold-silver ratio then reaches 30 that would mean a silver price of $66. The long-term historical average of the ratio is 15 Now, that's an important number to remember. That is the historical hundreds of years average of gold-to-silver ratio. I'm going to read that again. The long-term historical average of the gold-silver ratio is 15. That corresponds pretty well to the quantity of silver to gold in the ground, which is 19 times, and to the quantity of silver to gold mined, which is 9. 9 ounces of silver mined for every 1 ounce of gold. If we take our long-term forecast for gold, which is at least $10,000 in today's money, and apply the gold-silver historical ratio of 15, we get a silver price of $667, which is quite possible. Gold charts, US, gold charts R Us has produced a silver chart adjusted for real inflation, which is for, taken from the Shadow Stats Inflation Index, which produces an, adjust, an adjusted silver price of $840 in 1980 instead of the actual peak price of 50 Thus, a price of 667 is certainly possible in the next five years. We must remember that the futures markets are totally manipulated with chronic, short, massive positions. Just, just the silver shorts in New York and China represent more than one year's silver production. Once the futures market breaks, there will be no physical silver available. Silver demand is now increasing dramatically, and the ETFs have seen an increase of 125 million ounces in the last month. That makes 500 million per year which is 50% of annual production. Investment silver is normally around 30% of demand, with the rest being industrial use and silverware. Thus, there is not enough silver for this elevated demand, and we must question if the ETFs actually are getting the delivery of physical silver or just paper promises. I will not count on that they are getting physical silver. There is a similar situation in gold. Since June, gold ETFs, Published repositories and mutual funds increased their gold holdings by 250 tons, which is a record since 2016. The question is, where is the gold coming from to meet this increased demand? Swiss refiners are still reporting very slow business and high stock levels. They are seeing material coming back from the Far East, including China and Thailand. The same with many bullion banks, which are reporting unusually high stocks. We would clearly have expected the Swiss refiners, who produce 70% of all the gold bars in the world, to reflect the increase in demand from ETFs. I can only assume that the ETFs are not actually getting physical deliveries, but are just buying paper gold with an undertaking by the bullion bank to deliver physical. This confirms my strong opinion that no one should ever buy gold or silver ETFs. That's That's electronically traded funds. All you get is a piece of paper that you own X ounces of gold. Most ETF prospectuses state that they don't have to hold the physical, and judging by the slow business and high stock levels of refiners and bullion banks, the ETF seems to top up their paper stock rather than the physical. 
Even if the ETFs do hold physical metals, it is still within the banking system with all the risk that involves. Investors in ETFs don't have their own bars. They have no access to their gold. The gold is not insured and it is subject to all the risks of the financial system, especially if the ETF only has a paper claim on the bank it bought the gold or silver from. Gold has had a spectacular year so far and outperformed virtually all major investment classes. In 2019, gold is up 20% in U.S. dollars, 24% in euros, 25% in pounds, and 15% in yen. In August, we have seen strong moves in gold. The lack of physical demand confirms what we have always known, namely that the gold price is determined by the paper market. So in spite of the best year for gold since 2009, it is not yet reflected in the physical market. In one way, the situation makes the coming price move in gold and silver even more bullish. Futures exchanges and bullion banks are clearly accumulating even bigger short paper positions in gold and silver. When the paper market breaks, there will be absolute panic in the physical market with gold going up by thousands and silver by tens. That will definitely happen in the next few years, but it could happen at any time. Gold is for wealth preservation and not for price gains. I have given some potential price projections in this article. They are by no means meant to be sensational, since I believe they are very realistic. But remember, you are not buying gold or silver for short-term price gains, and therefore price targets are unimportant. So what he's saying here at the end of this article, I'm not going to read it all, is what I've been saying is that physical gold is an insurance on your money, the way you buy life insurance to protect your family, homeowner's insurance in case there's a fire. Gold, physical gold is money insurance, and everybody should have part of their portfolio in it. And I've been saying that for quite a while on Business Club. I'm going to come up on that last break. I've got some good educational enlightenment coming up. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. What's in your radio? What's in your radio? What's in your radio goes into your ears. Into your head. Into your heart. What's in your radio goes, goes, into, goes into your life. What's in your radio when you listen to our station? Good stuff. The stuff you want. Going first into your ears, then to your mind, then to your heart. Radio you want in your life. Life Radio. KKXX AM and FM. Welcome back to Business Buzz. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I appreciate that. I hope you get some interesting information from me, hopefully a little bit of entertainment. For this last segment, I have been traveling a bit lately. I've been able to do quite a bit of reading because when you're on plane flights, to me, you got to read something. I can't just sit there. I have a hard time falling asleep on an airplane. I always love to get a lot of reading done when I'm traveling, when I can. And I came across a very 
very good chapter from one of my favorite books. I thought I'd share it. And when you listen to this, just kind of put yourself in these shoes. Think about it. Uh, the more you think about it, the better this might help you, the, the more it'll help you. It helps me, and I really like the way this uh, this sort of wakes you, this, this reading kind of wakes you up. And this is from the book called A New Earth from by Eckhart Tolle. And the chapter I'm looking at, the subtitle of the chapter is called Pre-Established Roles. So I'm just going to start reading and tell me if this isn't very helpful because it's very helpful to me and it really gets you to think about things in a different way. Of course, different people fulfill different functions in this world. It cannot be otherwise. As far as intellectual or physical abilities are concerned, knowledge, skills, talents, and energy levels, human beings differ widely. What really matters is not what function you fulfill in this world, but whether you identify with your function to such an extent that it takes you over and becomes a role that you play. When you play roles, you are unconscious. When you catch yourself playing a role, that recognition creates a space between you and the role. It is the beginning of freedom from the role. When you are completely identified with a role, you confuse a pattern of behavior with who you are, and you take yourself very seriously. You also automatically assign roles to others that correspond to yours. For example, when you visit doctors who are totally identified with their role, to them you will not be a human being, but a patient or a case history. Although the social structures in the contemporary world are less rigid than in ancient cultures, there, there are still many pre-established functions or roles that people readily identify with and which thus become part of the ego. This causes human interactions to become inauthentic, dehumanized, alienating. Those pre-established roles may give you a somewhat comforting sense of identity, but ultimately you lose yourself in them. The functions people have in hierarchical organizations, such as the military, the church, a government institution, or large corporation, easily lend themselves to becoming role identities. Authentic human interactions become impossible when you lose yourself in a role. I'm just going to take a quick break here and interject that I've been lucky enough most of my adult life, I've been able, most of my working life, I've been able to be self-employed. Recently, I, and I'll be talking about this on Business Buzz as time goes by, I'm beginning a new business, which is an insurance agency. And uh, even though it's exciting and there's lots of possibilities, and technically as an insurance agent, I am self-employed. Even though I'm still technically self-employed, I am now sort of working in the environment of a large company. And that is very strange for me because I've been self-employed for so long. I've basically been my own boss. And of course, the customers are the bosses, but it, you know it's not quite that way. When you're self-employed, you're still pretty much the boss of your work. So I kind of see these roles happening in this new business I'm undertaking, and it just uh, it's kind of interesting. So I'm going to keep reading because I think this can help you. If you ever feel like you just want to back away and kind of take things, take life a little less seriously, take it easy a little bit, I think this will help. I'm going to continue. Some pre-established roles we could call social archetypes. To mention just a few, the middle-class housewife. Not as prevalent as it used to be, but still widespread the tough macho male, the female seductress, the nonconformist artist or performer, a person of culture, a, which is a role quite common in Europe, who displays a knowledge of literature, fine art, and music in the same way as others might display an expensive dress or car. And then there is the universal role of adult. When you play that role, you take yourself and life very seriously. Spontaneity, lightheartedness, and joy are not part of that role. The hippie movement that originated on the west coast of the United States in the 1960s and then spread throughout the Western world came out of many young people's rejection of social archetypes, of roles, of pre-established patterns of behavior, as well as egoically-based social and economic structures. They refused to play the roles their parents and society wanted to impose on them, 
Significantly, it coincided with the horrors of the Vietnam War, in which more than 57,000 young Americans and 3 million Vietnamese died, and through which the insanity of the system and the underlying mindset was exposed for all to see. Whereas in the 1950s, most Americans were still extremely conformist in thought and behavior, in the 1960s, millions of people began to withdraw their identification with a collective conceptual identity because the insanity of the collective was so obvious. The hippie movement represented a loosening of the hitherto rigid egoic structures in the psyche of humanity. The movement itself degenerated and came to an end, but it left behind an opening, and not just in those who were part of the movement. This made it possible for ancient Eastern wisdom and spirituality to move west and play an essential part in the awakening of global consciousness. Temporary roles. If you are awake awake enough, aware enough, to be able to observe how you interact with other people, you may detect subtle changes in your speech, attitude, and behavior depending on the person you are interacting with. At first, it may be easier to observe this in others. Then you may also detect it in yourself. The way in which you speak to the chairman of the company may be different in subtle ways from how you speak to the janitor. How you speak to a child may be different from how you speak to an adult. Why is that? You are playing roles. You are not yourself, neither with the chairman nor with the janitor or the child. When you walk into a store to buy something, when you go to a restaurant, the bank, the post office, you may find yourself slipping into pre-established social roles. You become a customer and speak and act as such. And you may be treated by the salesperson or waiter who is also playing a role as a customer. A range of conditioned patterns of behavior come into effect between two human beings that determine the nature of the interaction. Instead of human beings, conceptual mental images are interacting with each other. The more identified people are with their respective roles, the more inauthentic the relationships become. You have a mental image not only of who the other person is, but also of who you are, especially in relation to the person you are interacting with. So you are not relating with that person at all, but who you think you are is relating to who you think the other person is, and vice versa. The conceptual image your mind has made of yourself is relating to its own creation, which is the conceptual image it has made of the other person. The other person's mind has probably done the same. So every egoic interaction between two people is in reality the interaction between four conceptual mind-made identities that are ultimately fictions. It is therefore not surprising there is so much conflict in relationships. There is no true relationship. The Monk with Sweaty Palms Kassan, a Zen teacher and monk, was to officiate at a funeral of a famous nobleman. As he stood there waiting for the governor of the province and other lords and ladies to arrive, he noticed that the palms of his hands were sweaty. The next day he called his disciples together and confessed he was not yet ready to be a true teacher. He explained to them that he still lacked the sameness of bearing before all human beings, whether beggar or king. He was still unable to look through social roles and conceptual identities and see the sameness of being in every human. He then left and became the pupil of another master. He returned to his former disciples eight years later, enlightened. Happiness as a role versus true happiness. How are you? Just great. Couldn't be better. True or false? In many cases, happiness is a role people play, and behind the smiling facade, there is a great deal of pain. Depression, breakdowns, and overreactions are common when unhappiness is covered up behind a smiling exterior and brilliant white teeth, when there is denial, sometimes even to oneself, that there is much unhappiness. Just fine is a role the ego plays more commonly in America than in certain other countries, where being and looking miserable is almost the norm, and therefore more socially acceptable. It is probably an exaggeration, but I am told that in the capital of one Nordic country, you run the risk of being arrested for drunken behavior if you smile at strangers in the street. If there is unhappiness in you, first you need to acknowledge that it is there. But don't say, I'm unhappy. Unhappiness has nothing to do with who you are. Say, there is unhappiness in me. Then investigate it. A situation you find yourself in may have something to do with it. Action may be required to change the situation or remove yourself from it. 
If there is nothing you can do, face what is and say, well, right now this is how it is. I can either accept it or make myself miserable. The primary cause of unhappiness is never the situation, but your thoughts about it. Be aware of the thoughts you are thinking. Separate them from the situation, which is always neutral, which always is as it is. There is the situation or the fact, and here are my thoughts about it. Instead of making up stories, stay with the facts. For example, I am ruined is a story. It limits you and prevents you from taking effective action. I have 50 cents left in my bank account is a fact. Facing facts is always empowering. Be aware that what you think to a large extent creates the emotions that you feel. See the link between your thinking and your emotions. Rather than being your thoughts and emotions, be the awareness behind them. Don't seek happiness. If you seek it, you won't find it. Because seeking is the antithesis of happiness. Happiness is ever elusive, but freedom from unhappiness is attainable now by facing what is rather than making up stories about it. Unhappiness covers up your natural state of well-being and inner peace, the source of true happiness. Parenthood, role or function. Many adults play roles when they speak to young children. They use silly words and sounds. They talk down to the child. They don't treat the child as an equal. The fact that you temporarily know more or that you are bigger does not mean the child is not your equal. The majority of adults at some point in their lives find themselves being a parent, one of the most universal roles. The all-important question is, are you able to fulfill the function of being a parent and fulfill it well without identifying with that function, that is, without it becoming a role? Part of the necessary function of being a parent is looking after the needs of the child, preventing the child from getting into danger and at times telling the child what to do and not to do. When being a parent becomes an identity, however, when your sense of self is entirely or largely derived from it, the function easily becomes overemphasized, exaggerated, and takes you over. Giving children what they need becomes excessive and turns into spoiling. Preventing them from getting into danger becomes overprotectiveness and interferes with their need to explore the world and try things out for themselves. Telling children what to do or not to do becomes controlling, overbearing. Well, I'm running out of time on today's business buzz, but I hope you enjoy that small part of a chapter I read from A New Earth uh, about role-playing. And the part about the parent-child is uh, it's interesting. The bottom line is, and it's the same for any of these books that I've been reading, any of these chapters that I read on Business Buzz now and then, it's not learning it, it's not memorizing anything from it, it's just taking a little bit from it and practicing. Practicing a little bit. Like right now, you could just think about what we just talked about, about that role-playing, and just sit back and sort of distance yourself from yourself and say, hmm, what roles did I play today? And then catch yourself doing it. And once you catch yourself doing it, I mean, everybody does it. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you kind of observe, I won't say catch. Catch makes it sound like it's a crime. If you observe yourself playing a role, you can sort of step back and then maybe appreciate that other person more Instead of being, uh, like it was saying, instead of being a doctor, let him be a human being to you. And maybe you'll become that to him at the same time because these things sort of work. They sort of work mysteriously. If you set your mindset a certain way while you're talking with someone, a lot of times you can notice that the whole conversation will just sort of change because because of what you initiated, which was, uh, Course in Miracles calls it holy instant, but once you step back while you're talking to someone and forget about roles, forget about the current day's activities, and just uh, concentrate on being with that other person. And another trick that I have on that is to act like act like this person is just something in your mind, that it's something that is part of you. Once you do that, you're in what the Course calls holy instant, and sometimes things can change dramatically just by doing that. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll see you next time. Please listen to Business Buzz.